broke through the walls of Yerushalayim, fighting and killing, till they came to the Harabayas. The Harabayas does not look like it looks like today. Until the time of the Crusades, or actually post-Crusades, it was essentially a freestanding structure. Um, when you're standing at the castle today, you're in midair. There's as much underground as there is above ground. And you can imagine that walk down, what it was like. And so it was like a fortress. And so it took them a while to break in. You can read Josephus, he describes it. And until they were able to break into the Harabayas, which they finally did on Rosh of, slaughtering and killing, till they captured the base of Mikdash. The 7th, 8th, and ninth, they defiled the base of Mikdash. You know the Gemara's in Gittin. The end of the ninth, they said fire to it. It burnt into the Chatzos of the 10th. Mm-hmm. That's the most recent historic events. But of course, if we look at the Mishnah and Tainus, so we know the first event that happened on Shavas of Atamas was the Chaita Egel. Right? And the first event that happened on Tishabav was the Maragra. Now, the fact that the three weeks are sandwiched by those two events historically cannot be accurate. Because the two events were separated by more than a year. The Chaita Egel took place during the first year, and the Chaita Maragra took place during the second year. And yet, there are a lot of uh, Chazal that link the two together. You can see parallels. It's the only time, two times that Moshe says that Kodesh Baruch Hu, the argument, what will the Mitzrim say? Both times he uses the Yidgimul Midais. Both times Hashem responds, Salachti Barecha. But there's a Rashi that says it's 40 years starting from the first year, says Rashi in Parsha Shlach. Why? Because already from the Cheta Egel, I was planning on performing <clears throat> this decree and having everyone die in the desert, but I waited till they finished the Chet by the Miraglim. Which means that there's a natural continuity between the Egel and the Miraglim, which we obviously have to understand. <clears throat> because the Chazal tell us that every generation where the base of Migdash is not rebuilt, had it been standing, it would have been destroyed. So we're really in a very difficult situation right now. We're in between the Cheta Egel on our way to the Cheta Maraglim. We're in between the destruction of the Egel and the Luchos and the destruction of the base of Mikdash. And those events have to be understood. We don't treat the root. We treat the symptoms. Right? Everyone knows this. If somebody knocks over a bottle of soda, it doesn't really pay to start wiping it up on the floor. First you have to pick up the bottle. Yeah? And it's the same thing here. We have to get to the root of it. Which means we're still doing the Cheta Egel. That's what it means. That means this past Shavos of Batamus, the fact that we still had a fast day meant that we built an Egel and the Luchos got smashed. And unless we change history, we're going to do the same thing come Tishabav, we're going to destroy the base of Mikdash. So we have to put it into a context and understand this. So I want to take a look, if I can, at the Chaita Egel. And I want to ask the following question. It's different than the question everybody asks me. The question everybody asks me is, how could it be that the Dordea, 
which heard HaKadosh Baruch Hu speak, how could it be that they built an Egel? That's not my question. My question is, how could Shevet Levi not have participated in the Cheta Egel? How did they stay out of it? The women didn't do the Cheta either, but that's because women are crazy. I said this to a ladies' group, so I'm not embarrassed to say it. Women are crazy, and that's a well-known truth, which I will develop, but is, is you know... Moving Meela, right? Okay. But, but how did Shevet Levi not get into the Chet Now, that's not usually the way people ask the question, but I'm going to read the story first, and then, of course, the, everybody else's question will make sense. Then I'll read Rashi. And then you'll try to figure out what in the world Shevet Levi was doing, why they weren't part of the Chet. And I'm a Kohen. So I know I was on the right side. You know what I mean? So, uh, so I read you the story. Just first of Sukkim. V'yaha'am ki boshesh Moshe l'redes menahar. And the people saw that Moshe delayed coming down from the mountain. V'yikawa'amu Aaron. And they all assembled against Aaron. Now Moshe left Aaron and Chor in charge. Where was Chor? This is a group participation moment. Where is Chor? He's dead. He's dead. He's been stoned to death. Doesn't look good for our heroes. Yeah? But Yomre love, and they say to Aaron, Kuma say Lono Elohim Ashayofanu. Make a God to go before us. Kizem Moshe Haisha Shalomeras Mitraim, Loyodonome Hoyoloi. This guy Moshe took us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Alright, so why don't you give it a little time, you know? What's the rush? But Yomalim Aaron, Parakunizme Azava Shabiazin the Sheikh and Bhagavan no Sangha View Eli. Take the gold from your wives and your children and bring it to me. According to Rashi, their wives wouldn't give it to him, so they brought their own jewelry. According to the Dasakanim, their wives wouldn't give it to them, so they ripped it off. They were in a hurry. And they make this molten cow, and it comes out, calf, and it said, they say, this is the God to get Egypt. Via Aaron, and Aaron saw it, it doesn't say what he saw. And he tells everybody there'll be a holiday tomorrow. They get up early. They bring korbanos. And then, they get up to celebrate. Yeah? Okay, well, that looks pretty bad. You read the story, it sounds pretty bad. I, I want to change the context. Yeah? Let's take the context first, just so we understand what happened. Moshe says to the Jewish people, here's the plan. We're going to go to Har Sinai, and Hashem's going to speak to me, and I'm going to tell you what he says. And the people say, oh no, Moshe, we want to hear a Kodesh Baruch Hu speak himself. And Moshe says, are you sure you're ready for that? That is a very high level of Nevoah. I don't know if you're ready to experience that. It can be a very painful and difficult situation to have such a powerful spiritual experience if you're not ready. One of the Mepharshe Haggadah, it says, this was Gilo Shechina. So what does that mean? That Kodesh Baruch Hu was Megala himself and all of the Neshamos flew to him. 
because they weren't strong enough to stand up to the experience, and they all just, everyone died just from the experience of the Gilish Chinam. You sure you're ready? Yeah. So he says to Hashem, they want to hear you themselves. Okay. Go to the mikvah. Get ready for this. It's an unbelievable experience. Make sure you're ready. You ready? Okay. They're standing in Harsinai. Fire, smoke, darkness, you know, power, lightning, thunder. And they reach this tremendous elevated level of Navur where they see the sounds and they hear the sights. And they're out of this world. And Hashem says, the first of the Sarah Hashem Bam! Everybody dies. And Moshe says, wow, this looks pretty bad. Don't worry about it. Brings everybody back to life. You know? And he says, you guys okay? Yeah. Ready for another one? Uh, yeah, okay. Lo yelacha, bam! They all die again. Moshe says, wow, uh, 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 this doesn't look good. Hashem says, I do this all the time. Don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> a little towel to pierce me, Sam. You know what I mean? Everybody comes back up. You all right? Yeah. You sure? You look a little woozy. No, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I don't know what it's like to die and come back to life. Yeah? Twice. Yeah? And uh, I assume everybody was a little punch drunk, I assume. You know. So most of you guys okay? Yeah. Only eight more to go. <laughs> so one guy in the crowd says, you know what I'm thinking? As we're standing here? How about Moshe speaks to Hashem and tells it to us? And I was like, yeah, woo, that was great. I was like, don't you want to hear from Hashem? Nope. You sure? Because, nope. I cannot drop dead every time Hashem speaks to me. I am not ready for this experience. Twice was very impressive. Don't get me wrong. I'm going to remember this for the rest of as long as this life lasts. You understand? Well, I'm not going through that again. So Moshe, you're able to stand up to this, and that's fine. We all died, except for you, so you're okay. And he says the rest of the Dibros, and then he says, okay, now I'm going to go up into the mountain. 40 days and 40 nights, I'm going to bring you back to Torah. Okay, wait for me. I'll come back by noon. You guys okay? Yeah. All right. Don't worry. Everything's fine. Yeah. Okay. I'm leaving Aaron and Khur in charge in case you have any questions. Fine. And Moshe walks into the fire. Hurry back, they call after him. Now they're a little nervous. And because they were so nervous, they made a mistake. They counted that first day because you want to count it as quickly as possible. Yeah. It was my first year in base Medrash. I had gone to a day school where we had an hour and a half of Gemara a day. And now I was in Yeshiva Gedola from 7 o'clock till 10.30 at night. And it was not always easy. And often you would watch the clock. And you're watching the clock and you have about 10 minutes to go. And the Mashkiach looks at his watch and pulls over a chair, takes down the clock, and moves it back 20 minutes. And a part of me died that day. <laughs> because, you know, you really think, like, you know, when, when something's hard for you, you want it to get over a little quicker, you know? I took Lamaze. I still do the breathing better than my wife. Women come to me and ask me to teach them the breathing. All my wife did was have the baby. But I practiced the breathing. Anyway, so... Uh, so part of the Lamaz is you know, to talk you through it. Okay, you're almost done. You know, the, the contraction's mostly over, you know. The, the, Lamaz is really a brilliant idea. The whole point of it is to try to convince a woman who's in agonizing pain that she's not, you know. And shortly after Lamaz was introduced, the divorce rate went up to 60% because uh, nothing good will come out of this, you know. 
<laughs> Luckily, my wife wasn't in the room when they did my heart surgery this past January, you know? Because she'd be like, oh, no, no, don't give him any anesthesia. I'll breathe with him. <laughs> I'll just talk him through it, you know? <laughs> so uh, I'm really much more in favor of epidurals now, if not total anesthesia. But anyway, but... Um, they did my operation Wednesday. I didn't wake up till Friday, you know, and, uh, and that worked fine. Anyhow, so um, uh, anesthesia, Lamaze, breathing. What in the world was I talking about? What? Oh, he turned back the clock, right? So you want it, you know, when you want things to go a little faster. But I have ADD, but I always find at least one kid who's on Ritalin, and he keeps score where we left. We went off on a tangent, and he brings us back. So, you know, because I find most of my students have ADD, too. So I'm like, where are we? And I was like, I have no idea. <laughs> How did we get here? I don't know, you know. Once had a kid, he, he had ADD. He says to me, you know how many kids with ADD it takes to change a light bulb? I said, how many? He said, you want to ride my bike? <laughs> and we both looked at each other. <laughs> What's the punchline? I don't remember. <laughs> Anyhow. So, uh, right, Mashkiach changed back the clock. So, so they counted the first day they weren't supposed to. Now they're pretty nervous. And Moshe said he'd come back. Kiboshesh Moshe Loredes Menahar. Says Rashi, not Boshesh. Boshesh Yeah? They knew he was going to come by Sheshos. Betez Zion, which was the 40th day according to the Rechajman, which was wrong, Bar Hasotan Arve Vesa'olam. What does that mean? Arve Vesa'olam? What? Mixed it up. Arve is to, is to mix, is to stir. You ever hear people say the Erev is down? The only way the Erev is down is if they took a box of matzah that they usually keep on top of the Aron Kodesh and take it down. That's how the Erev goes down. That's the Erev. The string with the poles is just the tikkun movoi that makes it possible for you to make an Erev. But that's not the Erev. The Erev is the food that we all contribute to so we're all mixed together. An Erev Tavshilin mixes the whole with Yontif so you can cook for Shabbos on Yontif. That's, it's, it's, it's a mixture. Mixes things up. Arve vesa olam. Yeah? Vahar demus showed him the appearance of choshech, afela, the arvuvia. Darkness, deep darkness, and mix up. The appearance of mix up. Loimar, they said, vadai meis Moshe, lekach bo avuvia la olam. You know why this avuvia is coming? It must be Moshe's dead. Because he said, and it's already six hours, and he's not back. So it must be he's dead. Yeah? Now, they had what the basis on, said Rashi. Kizeh Moshe Ha'ish, Kimin Demus Moshe Haralehem Asotan, Shamayim. They saw Moshe dead being carried up to Shamayim. Okay. You're already pretty nervous. Yeah? 
the line from Pirates of Penzance, who are going to meet their fate in a highly nervous state. They're very nervous. Yeah? Any worthless information I have, I try to put into a shear. That's all, you know. I had a rabbi once said to me, Olavsky, if only you could use your mind for good instead of evil. Imagine what you could give to the world. So I figure all the nonsense I've picked up is there for a purpose. Yeah? Everybody's pretty nervous. Moshe goes over to the fire. Now it's the sixth. And they see the Satan Ma'arve Vesha Olam. What's Pshat Ma'arve Vesha Olam? Rashi says that Moshe Rabbeinu wrote down the whole Torah to Matan Torah. Which means they saw a Pesach. That you and I have both seen many times. Not Yom Revi'i, Yom Shlishi, Yom Chamishi, Yom Hashishi, which Rashi says is the sixth of Sivan. Hashishi. The sixth of Sivan. If you accept the Torah good, then if not, then the Bri is going to go back to Tovo. It will unwind. There was mixture. Confusion, chaos, disorder, boker, seder. That was the process of the Bria. It went from disorder to order. The opposite of entropy. Things were moving more and more organized, but the whole setup was hanging by a thread if you accept the Torah on Shavuos. Fine. We said Nasim and Ishma. Moshe went up. It's now the 40th day, and Moshe's dead. I know he's dead. Look, he's dead. That's a dead Moshe if I've ever seen one. And our Choshech and our Vuvia comes to the world. There was darkness, and the world is returning to darkness, and our Vuvia, the Seder of the Olam, is no longer there. Or to put it into different words, the time-space continuum is unraveling before our eyes. I don't know what the Bria turning back into Tovavo looks like, but it can't be pretty. Oceans are boiling, mountains are collapsing, galaxies are exploding. The entire Bria is falling apart. You know why? Because we didn't get the Torah. And the time is almost up. And so now we have to stop this process. And so we come in and say, uh, I don't know if you guys know what's going on, guys. Aaron, Chor, did you notice the entire universe is collapsing around us? And Chor says, return to your tents. There's nothing to see. Please disperse. Okay. This has been played out any number of times. I'm not chas v'shalom chayshu to anybody who's ever seen a movie, but ask your friends who have, you know. This has played out many times. You're trying to defuse the nuclear bomb, and there's always somebody waiting there that you have to fight first. Yeah? And so you have to first have this big fight and get this guy out of the way till you can... I don't remember if you cut the blue wire or the red wire, but one of those you have to cut, and then you can save the day. But first you have to beat the bad guy who's sitting there guarding it, you know? That's the way it always works. So Hor is stopping us, so we kill him, because I don't understand why he's not getting this, but the entire universe is ending before our eyes. Say, okay, Aaron, you're a nice guy, but you ain't your brother Moshe, because when Hashem spoke, you died too, you know? And if Moshe couldn't get down the Torah, then you sure aren't going to do it. So you're going to help us now build something, or we're going to kill you too. 
We need some way to communicate to HaKadosh Baruch Hu because we can't do it ourselves. I can't face HaKadosh Baruch Hu. I tried that already. Every time I have to find out a halacha, I'm not prepared to drop dead. Is this bow rare? Ah! Boom! Uh, what time is Krishna? Ah! You know, like, I can't live like that. So we need to build something like a mishkan, uh, something that we can use to communicate with the Kodesh Baruch Hu, to bring down the Torah because we can't do it. So Aaron says, okay, I know they made a mistake, but they're not exactly in a rational mood right now. There's something about watching the universe collapsing that, you know, can really shake most people up. So stall for time. Go and ask your wives for their jewelry. Honey, quick, give me your jewelry. Why? Because we're going to build an ego. Why? Because Moshe's dead. No, he's not. Yeah, yeah, we just saw him being carried dead up to heaven. Did you see that? Nope. He's not dead. I just saw him dead. No, he said he's coming back. He's not here, is he? I don't care. He's coming back. Women are like this. <laughs> they infuriate men all the time. Because they will just argue with you a position that is so clearly irrational that any person in their right mind can see it doesn't make any sense. But they don't care because they know they're right. You can't argue with them. Somebody said, your wife always has the last word in every argument. If you say anything after that, you're just starting another argument. You know? <laughs> and it doesn't matter. They're, they're, they're right because they're right. And that's it. You know? So, okay, forget about it. You know what? I'll take the jewelry myself. Ah! Oh, I hope those were clip-ons. Ah. Here's the gold. Your wives gave it to you? No, we ripped it off of them. Oh, that, that makes sense. Okay. Throw it in the fire. We'll melt down the gold. And then we'll set up a committee to decide what we'll build. We'll see the best way to go about it. First, we'll have some coffee and cake. You know what I mean? No better way to keep Jews busy than make a committee. You know what I mean? They'll have them work on it. They'll decide. They'll plan it out. By then, Moshe will come back. Of course... Uh, through poor planning, <laughs> whether it was the Erev Rav or whether it was Micha, Rashi brings both uh, possibilities. He will take the possibility of Micha. It had the little piece of silver that Moshe wrote Aleishor on it. To bring up Yosef, lahalos arono she Yosef mitoch nilus, v'shulichu atoch hakor v'yotza egel. So Moshe, so Aaron is trying to stall for time, and then all of a sudden, boom! The egel comes straight out of the fire, fully made. V'yar Aaron and Aaron saw what did he see? Shehaya baruach hayim. It was alive. Shenemar. It was walking and talking and eating grass, this golden calf. So he realized he couldn't push it off completely. Okay, you got a feel for iron over here. I'm trying to stall, and boom! This Egel Azam comes jumping out of the fire, 
fully made, it's walking, it's talking, it's eating grass, and the entire Bria went back to order. Zoop! And everything was fine. You have to admit that if you were one of the guys who was involved in the ego, and this is the result, you'd give yourself a big yashakaya. Shkaya. Right? They had that even back in biblical times. The last Rashi in the Torah, Yashakaycha Shashi Barta. Hashem gave Moshe many Yashakaycha. Yeah? We made it. Phew, that was a tough one. I really thought the Bria was going to end. I really thought that was the end of everything. And Shavit Levi sees Moshe dead and sees the universe unraveling before their eyes. And they're not part of this? Yehoshua, who has the unique role in Klai Yisrael, is the only guy who missed the eagle completely. The Erev is using their magic, and they're getting this thing walking around. The people are confused. Shevet Levi screaming no. Moshe Rabbeinu is up in Shemayim trying to stay Klai Yisrael. And Yehoshua doesn't even know anything's going on. He's just standing there by the mountain waiting for Moshe. Oh, look at that. All the galaxies just exploded. Hmm. Hey, there's Moshe. He's dead. Going up to Shemayim. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> when he comes down, he's like, Hey, Batman, sounds like there's noise in the machina. Sounds like it's a war. Moshe says, Ah, it doesn't sound like a war to me. What is it? Come, let's go take a look. <laughs> he missed the whole thing. How do you see these things unraveling? How do you see all these things taking place and you're not moved by it? That's question number one. Question number two is, I don't think that the Satan is really playing fair here. I mean, what do you want from me? I saw Moshe dead. I saw the Bria unraveling. Why in the world shouldn't I think I'm supposed to do something about this? That's not fair. So, let's go back to Gan Eden, because every Avera has its source in Gan Eden, and whenever you see anything going wrong, you have to trace it back to the source. Because Baruch comes and says to Adam, did you eat from the tree? And Adam gave the answer that men have been giving for close to 6,000 years. It's my wife's fault. I would, I would, I, I, what can I, she gave, I don't know, she did it. <laughs> so he goes to the wife and says, did you eat from the tree? And she says, the snake tricked me. The snake tricked me. So Hashem says, okay, we're going to start giving out punishments. And the Nachash says, I would like to say something on my own behalf. And Hashem says, okay, Nachash, we're going to start with you. He says, well, I really haven't had a chance to express my defense. I right, we're going to cut off your legs, we're going to make you crawl in the dirt, uh, you're going to get your head crushed, and you'll eat dirt. Okay, I really have to say something at this point. You know why I did it? You told me to! You told me, go out and seduce mankind, and I did it in record time. I was going to raise in a promotion, and instead you cut off my legs and make me eat dirt? It's like they say in the unions, don't work too hard or you'll lose your job, you know what I mean? My gosh! <coughs> So Hashem says, listen, don't look at it as a punishment. Look at it as an opportunity. 
<laughs> yeah, what do I mean? You're up here. You did a great job. You knocked down mankind. So when mankind is here and you're here, okay, that makes sense. But they've fallen. They give out awards for short films. College students make what are called short films. And years ago, I heard this, this has to be 25 years ago maybe, that a short film won, in a, won the award that year. It was called Godzilla Meets Bambi. For those of you who are not familiar with these icons of secular culture, um, Godzilla is a giant uh, radioactive reptile that every few years used to destroy Tokyo. And Bambi is a little deer. <laughs> and the film, which is a short film, yeah, Bambi comes out into the forest and walks around and looks at her little butterfly friends and goes like this. And a giant foot comes down and goes squash. And that's the end of the film. Because it's really not much of a contest. That's us against the Sahara In the state that we are now. And there's a Gemara that stars people like Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Meir that says the Satan turns himself into a beautiful woman and seduces them. And they're swimming rivers and climbing trees. And then he turns back into the Satan and says, just remember Akiva. That's Rabbi Akiva to us. The guy who knew more Torah than Moshe Rabbeinu, who reached the Nun level of Kedusha. Just remember Akiva. I can have you anytime I want, but Hashem doesn't let me. He ties both arms behind my back and my legs. I have to crawl on my belly and bite you from behind. That's just because Hashem doesn't let me loose. But if I did, forget it. None of you would stand up before me. It will crush you like an eggshell, little man. Crush. That's the Eight Sahara. That's the Satan. But Harsinai, we reach the level, say the Chazal of Adam, Kodem Yeah? It doesn't say, Choros HaLuchos, Ela Choros HaLuchos. Freedom. Choros Mena Misa. Choros Mena Shicha. Choros Mena Yetzahara. We would have been back to what mankind was supposed to be. We would have fixed everything. We're now on the highest level. As Rashi says, the Kurdish Baruch will open up all the Rikiyas. Take a look. Is there anything there? Nothing there. Open up all the Tahimim. Is there anything there? Nothing there. Take a look. Is there anything? Look in all the directions. Nothing. You know reality? Yes. Absolute reality? You sure? Okay. So he says to the Satan, all right, they're back where they're supposed to be. You're, you're free to do what you want. And the Satan goes, yes! Ah, it's great to be back. How is everybody? Yeah? I haven't been here for years. Okay, what are we going to do? Let's do a little Choshech, a little Avuvia, a little Dead Moshe action. I love my job. You know what I mean? And he's going to give them a test that's going to shake their sense of reality. And the majority of them fell for it. The Shemit lady says, don't you guys know this can't possibly be real? Don't you realize that? This is a test. Is a trick? I don't know, it looks pretty real to me. No, it doesn't look real. It's a trick. You're being fooled. You're not going to fall for the old dead Moshe up to Shemayim and the world collapsing trick. And that's the third time this week. <laughs> Come on. But the illusion is so real. 
and you get sucked into the illusion and everything seems to be going the right way. Rav Shach once asked the briskerov, Amuna? Who needs Amuna? Anybody with half a brain can figure out there's a God who gave the Torah on Arsini. The evidence is so overwhelming if you're intellectually honest. Open parentheses, Rabbi Khan Vasman says that it's a chiv on every 13-year-old guy to figure out that there's God because it's one of the Shev Mitzvahs in Noah. Close parentheses. So says Rishach, anybody can figure that out. Said the brisker of you're right. Amuna starts when it doesn't make sense. When things don't go the way I want. Was it 10 years ago? I don't remember. Dr. Laura, a popular call-in show host, converted to Orthodox Judaism. I assume she gave it careful thought. Yeah, she is, after all, a doctor of physiology. Why she gives psychology call-in shows, I'm not sure, but the degrees in physiology. But she, she's an intelligent person. I'm sure she didn't do it flippantly. Orthodox Judaism. Other streams, maybe you could do it more flippantly. But Orthodoxy, you have to really, you know. And she was the darling of the Orthodox world. Every organization dragged her out. You know, Dr. Laura holds this as Hashem, you know. And then one year before Rosh Hashanah was in Elul, she said, I'm returning to my Christian roots. I can no longer remain a Jew. Why? Because the Jewish community doesn't support my show. Now, let's analyze that just for a moment. Yeah? If God gave the Torah to the Jews on Mount Sinai, and this is true, does it become less true because people don't support your show? People believe in God. Can God do anything? God can do anything. Until I lose a lot of money. Then... God just doesn't know what he's doing. He dropped the ball. It must be there is no God. We live in an absurd universe. I was having a hard time at one particular time in my life. Let me rephrase that. One of the times that I was having a difficult time in my life, I met a Hasidic friend of mine, and he saw I was a little down. He wanted to cheer me up. My Musa friends have one way of doing it. My Hasidic friends have a different way of doing it. So he tells me a Maiseh. He says, Yitzchik Levi Yitzhi Badichi was walking with his chassidim and he stops and he says, if I was a Kaddish Baruch you know what I would do? And they said, what? Just what he's doing now. Why, you think I'm smarter than him? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, that's it. I'm smarter than God. You can be honest. All of us are smarter than God. Not all the time. But every now and then we look at situations where we're pretty sure that the big guy just dropped the ball. You know? Most of the time you got it down, but this time, you know, you haven't got it right here. Because this is how I would have done this. Come here, come here, let me, you got a few minutes, come with me. <laughs> I'll tell you how we should have done this. And I suddenly realized that's the problem, we're smarter than God. So now when things happen and people ask me, you know, well, how do you deal with this? I said, what do you mean? Well, I don't have to deal with nothing. Because Baruch didn't ask me, he's doing what he's doing. You know? And I don't want to be God. I don't like the hours. <laughs> I don't care about the benefits. You know what I mean? You know? 
It's, it's a hard job. And Mistama, Kodesh Baruch knows what he's doing. That's what you got to say, Mistama. Well, probably he knows what he's doing. You know? It's one of the, uh, it's one of the side benefits of being all-powerful and all-knowing. You know what I mean? You, you, you probably know what you're doing. But the illusion is so attractive that we think this is better. I don't know if I told these two stories. They go together. They're great stories. If you heard them, they bear repetition. I was uh, I was in a bungalow colony, and it was after Mincha, and I was learning. And these three people are gathered around the bima. It wasn't a very big shul. I was doing a Gemara in Sota, which was very interesting. What can I tell you? Their conversation was more interesting. <laughs> so I'm learning and listening. <laughs> and one guy is telling the following story. He leased a car. And in his lease, he's entitled to X number of miles. And if you go over that number of miles, you have to pay a dollar for every mile you go over. Yeah? And it was time to give back the car. And he was 200, 200 miles over. It's 200, that's $200. So he says, there's no way I'm paying these $200. And everybody nods. No, of course not. No, ridiculous. <laughs> Why? Because you signed a contract? <laughs> yeah. So he says, I found this Israeli guy who for $50 will turn back the odometer. Okay? So he goes to the Israeli guy, pays him 50 bucks. He's turning back the odometer, and the odometer breaks. Oh, that's right. Now we're in trouble. So the guy says, don't worry. I work with another fellow who deals with these situations. And he'll steal an odometer from a similar car, (laughs) which I'll put into your car. And there's no extra charge. It's included in the $50. (laughs) (laughs) And he changes the odometer, he moves it back, and he tells these two people on Shabbos afternoon in front of the Oren Kodesh, and I saved myself $150. And everyone goes, (laughs) And I look at, I, I didn't say anything, you know, I was a guest, you know. I looked at this and I said, you know, we used to die for this stuff. <laughs> Jews used to give up their life rather than go against the Torah. And this guy just lied, stole, stole, did everything he could do. All his dear ISIS for 150 bucks. I said, boy, you could buy a Jew for 150 bucks. Now, I, this, was, this was part of my summer experience. I told this story a bunch of times. Anyway, so I happened to be in Woodburn. A guy named Moshe Rosenbaum, Moro, runs his farm store over there. And I tell him the story. And he says, 150 bucks? I could buy a Jew for a lot less than that. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He says, people come into my Svarim store and they want to buy Svarim and they don't want to pay the tax. So I said, who's your paisik? Because with Moshe Feinstein says you have to pay the sales tax and the Satmarov says you have to pay the sales tax. So who's your paisik? If there's a paisik who says you don't have to, I want to know about it. So they start to get angry at me. And I said, oh, now I understand you don't believe in the Abishnah. Now, people who are buying Sfarim don't want to hear they don't believe in the Abishnah. 
So he says to him, it's obvious. You think that if you don't steal this 8% sales tax, you won't have a panosa for your family. HaKadosh Baruch Hu can't provide for you. You have to steal to be able to feed your family because God can't take care of you. You don't believe in the Eivishtah. Now that's pretty dramatic. But what does it mean? Somebody once said to me, many years ago, they haven't said it to me recently, but many years ago, <laughs> Rabbi Olavsky, I feel like you're a really honest guy. <laughs> no one said it to me recently, but years ago, I feel like you're an honest guy. I feel like, you know, like, like uh, that you, you, wouldn't, you, you won't be bought. And I said, no, just nobody's offered me enough money yet. And the guy's got to be a fool to think that he doesn't have a price. I don't know what my price is. No one's offered it to me yet. I'm waiting to find out. But so far, Baruch Hashem, I haven't, I haven't found anything. I had a former talent of mine. I was, came to America for the summer. And, um, and I was going to take my kids for a day into Manhattan. My brother Gedalia is here. He lent me his van. He had a big van at the time. And, uh, and I'm, uh, I want to take my kids to Central Park. And being a Jew, not even an Orthodox Jew, just being a Jew, I'm genetically programmed not to pay for parking. It's, it's a gene. They've, they've located it. Yeah? And so I'm circling around Central Park looking for parking. Because <laughs> I don't want to have to pay. Right? Now this story is, let's say, 25 years old, maybe more. You know, Money was different back then. I couldn't find a parking. The kids are going crazy. So I pull into a lot. And the guy says to me, $18 an hour. This is 25 years ago. Say $18 an hour, you crook, that's ridiculous. He goes, you want to go back out there? And the kids are like, mommy, mommy. Okay, fine. And I sat there, and goes, oh wait, a van? It's double for a van. <laughs> okay, fine. I said to my kids, you're going to see Central Park in less than an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I was running around. See that? That's nice. Let's go. (laughs) And when I come back, there was another attendant on duty, and he says to me, $18. This is where they make a shalshalas, yeah? And through gritted teeth, I said, Is it the same price for a van? And he says, oh, no, you're right, it's $36, thank you. And my Talmud who was with me said, what a tzaddik you are. You told him the right price. And I said to him, it's easy to be a tzaddik for $36. Could you be a tzaddik for $36,000? He says, what do you mean? I live in a little village in uh, Israel called Harnof. A lot of Americans there. And that year, three people, two of whom I knew personally, and the third story I heard from somebody, had their car stolen. And all three of them were asked the same question by the insurance company, was your alarm on? And all three of them knew that if they said no, they wouldn't get any insurance. And all three of them told the truth and lost the money. Now, the only reason they had a car is because they came on Aliyah, and they had schuyot, and they were able to buy a car, you know what and they all lost their cars, rather than to lie. Everybody has a price. But what's that price really worth? We get up to, we get up to Shemayim, what's it really worth? That's ultimately the question we have to ask ourselves.
What are you going to sell out for? And what are you losing in the process when the alternative is to be honest, when the alternative is to be good, when the alternative is to do what you know is right? Or you could buy into the illusion. And so many people do. I have a friend of mine, a Sisha fellow, he owns a clothing store in Borough Park, and during the economic downturn in the 80s, he suddenly saw he was missing a lot of merchandise. He put in those little white poles, they were still pretty new in the 80s, and it kept ringing. He says, you can't believe who was stealing from me. Hamish from people. And I said, how can you steal these clothes? How could you do this? It's a, it's a dear racer. I said, what can I do? I can't send my kid out on Shabbos in old clothes. I can't. So I have to steal it. Because the alternative is to not have my kid have a new Shabbos coat. And that I can't do. Because we all have to make decisions of what's most important to us. And the illusion is so incredibly powerful. Um, I'm a type 2 diabetic. Took many years to achieve. I worked hard at it. Yeah. Some people were born with it. Some of us are self-made. And uh, I worked very hard to get this disease. <laughs> and uh, so now, I'm not supposed to eat any carbs. Yeah. I'm drinking my diet soda, as you were all having your carb festival over there. But... Now, I'll be honest with you. I'm inconsistent. I buy into the illusion like the next person. But sometimes I'm really good. My nutritionist said, you're never supposed to put it that way. It's not a question of being good or bad. You know, you just have to try the best you can. But those of us who diet know that there's, there's good and bad. That's it. So when you're good on your diet, you're not eating anything wrong. You're filled with that self-righteous you know, sense that drives us. So people would say to me, oh, you really have to try this piece of cake. And I say... Is it worth dying for? I don't know if it's worth dying for. You know, I mean, it's very good. You know, and every now and then, a person says to me, "This is worth dying for." I said, "Well, then I'll have to taste it." Yeah. <laughs> if it's worth dying for, me. and only once were they right. <laughs> but let's be honest: most of the time, the majority of the time, you look at that piece of cake. It's all a fantasy. The cake begins to call to you. I will make you happy. Happier than you've ever been. I'm the most delicious thing you've ever had. If you eat me, your life will be so much more fulfilled. And by the time you have it, there's no way that you can possibly live up to this, you know. By the time you take the first bite, you know, you're like, oh, it's, it's not so good. <laughs> It must be a chisarin to me. You know, take another piece. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I'm here already. You know, it's like, you know. Because uh, we're going after the fantasy. Those of you who are not married yet, so you're still in the dating process, you know. Um, so you know that we tend to check out a lot. You know. Um, my first son-in-law, who happens to be extremely intelligent, and a tremendous Tamachacham, and he knows, you know, just about everything in addition to knowing tremendous amounts of Torah on a very deep level, you know. He needed another, a new Merpeset, so he built it himself. 
He programs computers. I mean, it's just on the side. He has a truck driver's license. He, he was licensed by the Ministry of Tourism to go repel him off of mountains, you know. That's in between, you know. So he filled this stuff in, you know. Really talented guy. And when he got married, my, my first daughter, so he told me years later he was disappointed that I didn't fahir him enough. And I said, well, for what? I don't have to live with you. My daughter has to live with you. You know, I checked into you. You don't have a police record. You know what I mean? That's good enough, you know? I used to tell this joke for a while until one of the boys had a police record. <laughs> anyway. And he said to me, it's not really true what they said. The whole thing was a mix-up. <laughs> anyway. That's an interesting story in and of itself. But anyway. But, um, uh, you know, nice guy. But today, people do so much checking. You know, and they sit down with the boy and they say, oh, this girl, this girl, she did this, she said, you know. Anyway, by the time you go out on the date, you're already married with two kids. You know what I mean? You've built this up in your mind. And when she says no, you just got divorced. And she took your children away. Because <laughs> the fantasy, we build up in our minds the fantasy. You know? Sometimes you go to people's houses. Yeah. And you look around and you're like, wow, if I had a house like this, boy, would I be happy, you know? And uh, the truth is, you probably would, but that's not the point. (laughs) The point is that, like, you know, at what price, at what cost, what are you willing to trade for that, you know? You know, there's, there's... Decisions we have to make every single day, and there are illusions. The base of Mikdash is based on reality. It's all reality. The Gemara says, after, before the base of Mikdash was destroyed, that a person found fulfillment in marriage that you could never find outside of marriage. And after it was destroyed, Mayim Genuvim Yuntuk, suddenly stolen waters are sweet. Suddenly, the fantasy and the illusion becomes so much greater. And we imagine. There are so many fights that happen in marriage. It's all based on illusion. Why can't you be like Yanko? Look how Yanko spends so much time with the kids. Look how Yanko hops around the house. Look how Yanko, look how Yanko. I can't be like Yanko, yeah? Well, if you were like Pessy, I guess I'd be like Yanko. <laughs> You ever see how clean the house is? You ever see how she talks to him? You ever see how, you know? Maybe if I were, you were Pessy, I'd be younger. You ever think of that? <laughs> yeah. And when we're not doing that, we're like to, to our kids. Why can't you be like Shlamey? Look how nice Shlamey is. Look how behaved he is. Look how he does this. Look how he sits in control. Look how he learns. Look how he does it. And we have all these fantasies. If only my wife was like this, or my kids were like this, or my house was like this, or something else, then everything would be different. You know what I say? You know what I would do if I was a Kurdish Baruch <laughs> Just what he's doing now. Because he knows what he's doing. And you don't have Yanko's house. And you don't have Yanko's wife. You don't have Yanko's kids. Because you have the best life that a Kurdish Baruch could possibly imagine for you. And if we spent our time living and enjoying our life instead of living and enjoying everybody else's life, then the world would be a different place. The Churban comes about because of illusion. We lost the base of Mikdash because of illusion. What was the Cheta Egel? We fell for the illusions of the Satan. We fell for make-believe instead of reality. 
And that led to the Miraglim. And the Miraglim came back and said, they're giants and gigantic cities. And it's outrageous and it's so impossible. You can't do it. Just give up. And we did. We just gave up. Everybody falls down. It's the nature of life. Everybody falls down. A little kid learning how to walk is always falling down. And he picks himself back up and he falls down again. He starts crying. And he goes right back at it. And we in life, sometimes we fall down and we say, I can't do it. I mean, I can't do it. But there's life, there's hope. If I'm still here, then there's something I can do. I can change the world. I can do great things. I can make myself a better person. It doesn't matter if I've failed a million times. At one point in baseball, I'm going back uh, to the 1960s. Yeah? Who was the, had the most home runs? Who had the record for the most home runs? Babe Ruth. Who had the record for the most strikeouts? Babe Ruth. Because if you're afraid to swing, you're not going to hit a homer. Yeah? You want to bunt? You won't get very far. You want to hit it out of the park? You've got to be prepared to strike out. You never learn, say the Chazal, unless first you make a mistake. You first have to learn it wrong. And after it doesn't make any sense to you, and you work on it, and you work on it, and you come up with the wrong shot three or four times, you come up with the right shot, boom. you got to fall down. You gotta try. Can't be afraid. Wanna give up? The whole world is collapsing. Uh, It's too late. It's too late. Patience. Patience. Those of you who are in my age group, then you know that it's different when you tell time by decades. A little kid, we count the, the weeks, then we count the months, then we count the years. Then you start counting the decades. In my 20s, and my 30s, and my 40s. <laughs> it's a different experience. It's okay. It's going to take you a while. Take 10 years. I saw a sign once that said, God, grant me patience and give it to me now. <laughs> Everything is instant. Everything is immediate. Nobody wants to invest the time in it. Good things take time. My brother over Shalom had a player piano. It was a lot of fun. You pushed a button and the piano played itself. And he would sit there and pretend to play it. It was a lot of fun. But you can only do that for about a minute. I have another friend of mine. His name is Abe Rottenberg. He used to just sit there and compose music. I remember when I was, I was uh, out in Los Angeles, I would sometimes just drop in on him, usually around supper time. Uh, I was a bacher. And... Um, and he, he would sit down at the piano and just start playing and I didn't recognize any of the songs and I said to his wife what's he playing and she said his day he could turn his day into music but he had to learn how to play the piano that's a lot harder than learning how to play a player piano it takes a lot more time you have to invest in it but then you have something real reality is always harder than illusion and when you have the illusion it's easy but it disappears and you're left there with Moshe standing there and the broken luchos and you watch your ego get destroyed and you say, wow, that really wasn't worth it. I wish I had stuck it out like Shevet Levy. I wish I had the courage to stick to my convictions even when they're hard. As the Briskarov said to Rishach, even when it doesn't make any sense. 
We're in a time now of Nisim Vineflos. Nisim Vineflos. And this is a time of tragedy. Uh, we watch missiles falling out of the sky. And a guy in Hamas was interviewed by CNN and said, how come your aim is so bad? And he said, it's not our aim, our aim is fine. Their God's protecting them. He sees the Amos. I happened to hear this guy on the radio, John Batchelor. He's in Israel now, in Ashkelon. And he was interviewing the mayor of Ashkelon. And he says, if we didn't have the Iron Dome, do you know what a disaster this would be right now? Ashkelon had 176 missiles. That would be the equivalent of an earthquake that destroyed the city. How many houses would be destroyed and people would be dead? Nisim in the flows, because Baruch is protecting this because the Iron Dome doesn't shoot down the majority of the missiles. We had a missile attack in Yerushalayim. Four missiles fell. One was shot down. Two of them fell in an open area. Have you ever been to Yerushalayim? How many open areas are there? <laughs> I keep hearing these missiles falling in open areas. They're aiming at cities. How many open areas are there? I'll tell you what an open area is. One missile fell in a lot in between two hotels. That was called an open area. Hit the, hit the uh, parking lot. You know, fell in an open area. There's two hotels on either side of it, you know? And the fourth one, never fell in an Arab house. <laughs> I know, I, I feel as badly as you do. <laughs> you know? And, and you see these things taking place. Kodesh uh, Baruch Hu can make anything happen. It doesn't matter how many missiles they have. It doesn't matter what the world has. It doesn't matter what anybody says to us. If we see reality, you don't have to worry about all the illusions. You don't have to worry about all the make-believe. A person has to be able to focus on what's real in your life. And when a person is able to see reality and we don't build an Egel, and we don't listen to the Miraglim, then we'll be in a position that we'll be able to, Mitz Hashem, have a base HaMikdash, which is the Makam of MS. Yeah? There are always three things. It's always three things. The Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov is the balance. And whether that's negative, yeah, whether it's... Uh, um, you know the three of Averis and Shri Chazdamim Gilerayis and Vodazara it corresponds and when the Gemara tells us there are three Pischei Gehenim it corresponds the one in the Midbar Midbar represents Din that's Yitzchak the one that's in the ocean water represents Chesed that's Avraham and the one that's in Yerushalayim that's Yaakov that's Emes Emes the Yaakov and what's the corresponding Avera to that? Avodah Zorah. What's Avodah Zorah? The ultimate illusion. And when we get rid of the Avodah Zorah and we're ready to embrace the MS, then we can get back to base of Mikdash where we're able to approach HaKadosh Baruch Hu and go three times a year to see HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And experience HaKadosh Baruch Hu as if you're seeing Him and feel it for real. That becomes the goal. When we can see him now in the darkness, that's, that's the way we start. But to be able to see HaKadosh Baruch on the base of Mikdash, that's what we want to be zeichet to. Mitzah Hashem HaKadosh Baruch Hu should make this the last Shavasa Batamas and we shouldn't have to go through a Tisha
I don't think I did this. I realized last time it was Elul, so I did Elul already. 